In our special Brexit-focused edition of Word on the Street, our panel of political, economic and capital market experts analyse another seismic week in UK's Parliament. Hello and welcome to our first Word on the Street Brexit special. This is recorded on Thursday the 5th of September. As many of our existing clients will be aware, we've been hosting regular conference calls with colleagues in the investment division and the government relations team to help keep investors up to date with every shuffle, shimmy and gyration of the Brussels-Westminster Brexit dance. But many of you have asked that we move these calls into the popular podcast format to make them even easier to uh, to listen to. So with that, let me introduce our panel of experts. Firstly, former political advisor in Westminster, now an important part of the Barclays government relations team and someone whom we can rely on to help us read between the lines of the political rhetoric. It's Sophie Traherne. Also, and seemingly ever-present, the looming spectre of our Chief Investment Officer, Will Hobbs, who's here to translate the talk into tactical ideas and strategy for our investors. And last but certainly not least, our Head of Asset Allocation and in-house Continental European, JP Yeagers. Hello, everybody. So, Sophie, let's start with you, if I may. MPs are back from the summer recess. The mayhem has continued in Westminster and there has been a huge amount of political drama. Can you tell us what's been going on? Two important things have happened this week. Uh, Firstly, a bill to extend Article 50 again is making its way through Parliament. And number two, the Prime Minister has tried and failed to trigger a general election. And uh, I'll start off with the bill. Um, So MPs, uh, the so-called Remain Alliance of Lib Dems, the Labour Front Bench, uh, Tory rebels, the SNP, etc., have successfully introduced legislation, which if it passes all the parliamentary stages before Parliament is prorogued next week, it aims to extend Article 50. So you mentioned Tory rebels. There were about 21 of them, weren't there? I wonder if you can tell us what what does it mean? Because they've had the whip removed from them. And what's that done to the Prime Minister's majority? Yeah, 21 uh, Tory rebels on Tuesday night. And as you said, they've all had the Conservative whip removed, which is the ultimate punishment for unruly MPs. It means that they are technically no longer Conservative MPs. And importantly, this list includes eight former cabinet ministers, 11 former ministers, and Nicholas Soames, the great grandson of, or the grandson of Winston Churchill. And this was really significant, not just for political journalists in the Westminster bubble, but it was a real moment for the Conservative Party and the Prime Minister. And it means that the Conservative government no longer has any sort of majority. And that leads me back uh, nicely to the bill and the fact that because of the Prime Minister's lack of majority, it passed through the House of Commons uh, last night by a majority of 28. So that moves then up to the House of Lords. And at one stage, there was a seemingly a plot in the House of Lords amongst uh, supporters of the Prime Minister to add amendment after amendment after amendment to it and debate them. Um, but that has been overturned now, hasn't it? Yeah, so the bill is making its way um, through the Lords at the moment. And as you say, there, there was all this talk of, of filibustering the Lords and amendments in the Lords. Um, this is all stopped now. And in theory, it should receive royal assent on Monday before Parliament prorogues that week. Um, immediately placing a legal duty on the Prime Minister to seek an extension to Article 50 next month uh, if a Brexit deal has not been agreed. And and the dates to to look out for are 19th of October. That's the date where if uh, a deal has not been agreed uh, with the EU and approved by Parliament, uh, the Prime Minister will have to send a letter to the President of the European Council requesting an extension to Article 50 until the 31st of January 2020. And of course, the Prime Minister's reaction to all of this was to call for a snap general election. 
Yes, so Boris is committed to leaving the EU, as we all know, on the 31st of October, do or die, deal or no deal. So he does not want to be put in the position where he's being forced to ask for an extension. And because it seems like he can't stop the bill, um, we talked about the filibuster in the Lords, this hasn't happened, he decided to call for a vote for a snap general election. This is what Theresa May did in 2017, if you remember, and he needs uh, he needed two-thirds of MPs uh, to vote in favour of this motion. And because the Labour Party decided to abstain, the government actually failed to get the votes it needed to, to trigger that general election. Now, there's an interesting point there. So Jeremy Corbyn has been calling for a general election month after month after month, seemingly for an eternity. This was his opportunity to get one. Why didn't he support the Prime Minister in, in going ahead and, uh, and scheduling a general election? Yeah, so Labour, they have been quite clear, they want to ensure that Parliament has legally prevented the option of no deal Brexit on the 31st of October before an election is held. So, you know, as you say, this Labour had been calling for a general election for the best part of two years. But because of that reason, they refused to vote for one yesterday evening. So at this point, the ball is very much in Jeremy Corbyn's court, really. Once the legislation for extending Article 50 has passed... He needs to decide when to call a motion of no confidence in the government, which just needs a simple majority of MPs to vote for it. And that's as opposed to the two-thirds yeah. majority that the Prime Minister needed last night. Yeah, so the big the big debate at the moment is timing. Um, we're either looking at a general election mid-October or in November. And uh, as I said, the ball is in Corbyn's courts on, that, on the timing issue. So <clears throat> Jeremy Corbyn's got the, the control over when the timing's going to be, but what's polling telling us? What does it look like for the two parties? Um, so the latest polling I saw, and big caveats with polling, they should all be all polls should be treated with caution. Uh, the one, latest one I saw had Conservatives around thirty three percent, Labour twenty five, Lib Dems eighteen, Brexit Party thirteen. So we did see a bit of a Boris bounce when he first became Prime Minister. That's why they're a bit ahead. And he has managed to squeeze that Brexit Party vote a bit. But it is interesting um, that you know instead of the traditional two main parties. We are still seeing four parties battling out in the polls. And, you know, one of the big challenges for Labour is is the split in the Remain vote between them, the Lib Dems, the Greens, also the SNP in Scotland, implied Cymru in Wales. And I think it's, it's worth just adding that in recent history, at least, you know, general election campaigns haven't always run as expected. 2010 was supposed to be a clear Labour-Tory battle, but then in swept the Lib Dems. 2015 was not supposed to result in a majority for David Cameron. And, you know, the Conservatives went into the 2017 election way ahead in the polls. So treat all the poll- polling with caution. Um, it just goes to show that these elections can be incredibly unpredictable. Sophie, thank you very much for, as ever, taking something very complex and making it much, much simpler for us. JP, I'm going to throw the conversation over to you, if I may. Um, rather than talking about stock markets, in particular the FTSE 100, the largest 100 shares that we have, we've had the conversation in the past that actually it's sterling, which is more the barometer of what's going on in politics in the UK. What 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 is currency? What's sterling been telling you uh, 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 and the team about what's going on? So we have seen since the referendum that sterling has been quite volatile and especially in the recent past has lost quite a bit in value uh, given where the negotiations have been heading. But even with these recent votes, we see that uh, by preventing a no-deal Brexit, it doesn't necessarily give much more clarity to investors and traders. There are a lot of other things that will come up and still needs to be uh, you know, worked through. 
the examples being the possible breakup of UK. It's not a large likelihood, but still investors need to think of how they price these kind of things. And as we have seen, for example, in the European crisis in 2012, where there was also a lot of worries about a disintegration of the Eurozone, it's very hard to anticipate how our currency will respond to it. We've seen very good cases where investors made for a stronger currency, weaker currency. On top of that, all the uncertainty about the government, uh, Corbyn government makes it quite difficult at the moment for yeah, traders and investors to see where this will unfold. And you raise an important point there, and it is important to stress that when you talk about the probability associated with the breakup of the union, you not so much glibly, but you, you casually mention it's a very small probability. It's very easy for the newspapers to take something like that and print it large and cause a great deal of consternation about it. I just wanted to reinforce the point that a small probability is just that, a very small probability. But of course, when it comes to the market, there will be traders out there who, who make bets on these what we would call six standard deviation events that even though they have a very small probability of happening, if they did pay off, then there would be certain people who would gain significantly. But it is still your your view that this is this is a very unlikely event but it's still an important factor to be aware of in a broader market context. Absolutely. And if investors buy an asset or have exposure to an exchange rate, they have exposure to the future path. So any probabilities or any risk that increase and decrease will have an impact on the value of those assets. So however small the probability, investors have to look at all the potential risks. And that is, of course, one of the things that makes your job so difficult. So we're lucky to have you and your team focusing on that. What about central banks? What can they do or be expected to do in light of the recent political shenanigans? The outlook for central for the Bank of England in particular remains still very foggy. There are still of known unknowns. And as developments develop, they will probably set, set policy. But for the moment, they can't set policy on a future that's still yeah, not very visible to them. Perfect. Now, Will, over to you. One of the things, going back to the issue of newspapers printing headlines to shift or printing copy to shift volume, one of the things that has been creeping into the headlines more recently is the notion of capital controls under a Corbyn government. Words like nationalisation, moving back to an economy of the 70s. You're the expert on uh, all things macro. What do you have to say about that? Yes, Toby. I mean, there are. There's a lot of concerns about this. I mean, I'd make one sort of killjoy point to start with, uh, especially with Sophie in the room, sort of government relations and sort of all of her expertise. But I would say that we shouldn't overplay the role of governments um, in determining the kind of overall economic trajectory um, of the economy. Um, you know, tax rates, corporate and personal, um, are less important than advertised um, at the aggregate level in terms of growth. Now, obviously, that's not little consolation for the individuals. Um, who are having their sort of tax rate change. But in terms of the overall economy, it doesn't change much necessarily. It's more about the distribution of that wealth. And the US is a good example, actually. You know, over the 19th and 18th century, the tax rate, the marginal tax rate varied between the low single digits right up to the high 60s, I think. But you don't find the trend growth rate changing very much over that entire period. On capital trolls more specifically, uh, and really that's a point about sort of just being a bit wary about making sort of massive changes in your economic assumptions based on the kind of the type of government that you've got in uh, in power. It's a distributional story more than uh, more than other things. But capital controls are important. But I do think that this is harder to prosecute than advertise. The world was very different back in the 1970s. And in the UK's case, since then, you've had these kind of big bang financial reforms to the city. 
And that has essentially resulted in um, the financial services sector becoming far more intertwined and reliant on international capital flows. Now, if you suddenly cut that tap off, you would be dealing with I mean, economically savage repercussions, I would have thought that would be pretty sort of politically untenable. The other thing to point out with, and we were, I was looking at this earlier today, look at the proportion of people, and the ONS does a study of this, the Office of National Statistics show you how many people, um, the percentage of the population that travelled abroad in the 1970s versus now. Um, and there's obviously been a dramatic increase with, you know, cheaper airlines, all that kind of thing. Uh, a lot more people, you know, now people, it would have been unthinkable for people back in the 1970s to go for your stag do in sort of Eastern Europe or anywhere around Europe in general. They would have been in the UK on the night before your wedding. But now it seems to be the, the, the fashion. Now you think about telling all of those people actually, no, I'm sorry, you can't have foreign currency. That It would re- imply big changes, lifestyle changes if you did uh, uh, impose capital controls things that would be politically very difficult to, uh, to, to stomach, I would have thought. But there there's, no, well, there's, but there's no doubt from a rhetorical perspective that echoes of the glory times of the Labour government back in the 70s, it's quite a nice thing for the leader of the opposition to hark back to for his core. And necessarily, if you think about it, you know, in order to get us to trudge to the polls with increasing regularity, we probably have to exaggerate in our set to ourselves the actual effect that is going to have on the economy. And and we look at history in that way. We tend to sort of single out changes in political ideology and try and match them up to changes in the trend growth rate. I think the story is a bit fuzzier than that. Is so would say. it be fair, and uh, I, I know how much you like your political, uh, your historic references, would it be fair to throw ourselves back to FDR's inauguration address and say the only thing we have to fear is fear itself? Or is there a little bit more tangible concern here? Um... Yeah, I mean, with change in sort of, you know, in in politics, that's more difficult to say. I mean, I think it is a good point to make. And I think that makes a really good point about um, some of the sort of worries um, about um, leaving the the EU without a deal. You know, this is a just-in-time economy. A lot of our supply chains run on very thin margins, um, you know, including those for basic goods. And, And I think the thing that I would argue with regards to exiting without a deal is we should take, um, you know, the doomsday scenario seriously. Um, you know, calling anything, everything project fear and sticking your head in the sand is not a viable strategy for any business likely exposed to the kind of sprawling tentacles of this uh, of this sort of knotty problem. However, I think it would be a mistake to assume um, that this doomsday scenario is preordained. It's very much in the hands of, you know, the UK population, how much they panic or not. Uh, it's also a, a good degree of it is in the hands of, uh, you know, the EU um, and uh, how many of those sort of deals they, how many of those deals they roll over, you know, how strict the surveillance on HGVs at Calais is, you know, all of those things will have a, a big impact on sort of, you know, how serious, if there was an exit without a deal, how serious it would look. And so, yes, you know, it, a lot of it is in the short term in, in, in our hands, I guess. So before we go back to Sophie, one final question for you, Will, which is the dreaded R word, recession. Mm-hmm. Um, you have made the point that it, it is actually, going back to what I said before, the fear of recession can be more e- economically damaging than the recession itself. I wonder if we look at the likelihood of recession, you and the team keep a very close eye on a few key indicators. Um, what's your what's your outlook on the recession watch? Yeah, so the UK economy is certainly listing a little bit. It's been running into the sand for the last few quarters and it's had a lower trend growth rate or a lower growth rate 
uh, since uh, the referendum back in 2016. That's been well sort of covered and remarked upon. Now, there is an international element of this. And actually, we'll talk about this, as you know, in, 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 the, in the normal podcast that, you know, to be published uh, uh, tomorrow. We cover the sort of, you know, the, the global recession and the global environment, which is obviously a bit trickier for the UK. But there are also some domestic factors to consider. Um, and with regards to, so, you know, talked about those lead indicators, and we have just had a rash of business confidence uh, indicators um, and for the UK, and they have shown that you are or they are suggesting that some European uh, corporate supply chains are moving out of the UK. And that's another thing that's been creating a little bit of extra extra weakness. That's probably to be expected. Um, our point we would try and get back to is just remember that for the medium term picture for the UK, um, the trend growth rate is likely to be a bit lower, but it's not likely to be, uh, you know, it's not going to be the end of days for the UK economy. We just think that it will, um, you know, crimp economic activity that, you know, you probably get a little bit less immigration, slightly lower productivity, those kind of things. That's to be expected with the sort of the, the project that we're undertaking at the moment. But we don't want to get too pessimistic. on the No, and there are, of course, amongst all of that, there are opportunities for a portfolio that's run on a tactical basis by professionals to also exploit those opportunities Absolutely. through analysis, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Maybe, we're, maybe we'll see the rise of the active manager mm. off the back of it. Well, can I just say, you make a really good point there, because Brexit is one of those situations, much like sort of some other sort of situations around the world, which is highly emotional. Um, and when you get highly emotional situations, particularly where investors are getting involved, you tend to find that people may not be pricing that situation entirely dispassionately, accurately, those kind of things. And that can reveal little opportunities uh, for, the, um, for the dispassionate investor. Sophie, back to you before we wrap up. What's the timeline and next steps? What, should, uh, what, are, the, what are the key events we should be marking in our calendar? Um, I mean, things are changing daily, if not hourly. I've, I've literally just seen whilst we've been recording this that um, Joe Johnson, uh, Boris Johnson's brother, has just resigned as a minister and an MP. So there'll be lots of um, political moments over the next couple of, of days. Um, I think Monday is really important. Um, if the bill, as we expect, um, gets to that stage, it will receive royal assent on Monday. What will Jeremy Corbyn do at that point? Uh, will he be tempted to put down a motion of no confidence straight away on Monday? Parliament will be prorogued at some point that week, which means it then won't sit um, uh, over the next few weeks. We have the conference season uh, the next couple of weeks as well. So the Lib Dem conference, starting with that, then Labour, ending with the Tories, which finishes on the 2nd of October. Um, I mean, a lot could happen in that period. Um, <laughs> Not to mention a general election. Uh, well, yes, quite. And uh, if there isn't a general election before then, then they will come back on the 14th of October where we're supposed to be having uh, the start of the new parliamentary session and the Queen's speech. Um, if, uh, if a general election is triggered um, for October, then we could see general election uh, mid-October, as I said before. Um, if not, then we're looking towards the 17th uh, for the October Council. And then beyond that, obviously, the Brexit deadline of the 31st of October currently still stands. No letter has yet gone to the European Council. Well, there's a lot to digest there and certainly a lot more to come. So please do make sure if you're listening that you subscribe to make sure you receive regular updates from us. Um, as I've said, we'll be moving now into the podcast format for these Brexit deep dives. So if we're lucky enough to get Sophie's time and Will's time and JP's time, again, we will put these together as frequently as is necessary for you. Do not forget, though, that we're back again on Friday with our scheduled word on the street, because much as we may not have noticed, there are in fact, other things going on in the world that have a very meaningful impact on global markets. So make sure that you join us for that too. All that remains now is for me to thank our panel, Sophie Trahern, William Hobbs, 
JP Yeagers, and to thank you for joining us. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.